0: This morning's uh, scripture is taken from John chapter 6. I'm going to be reading um, from verses 60 uh, to 71. Uh, You can follow along in the screens or in your bulletin, or if you brought a Bible, uh, you can follow along there as well. This is God's word. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man descending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you, for raising our voices together in song and in readings, Father, to be reminded of your greatness and your wonder and your acts in time and space and in history. And we're thankful for the reading of your scriptures, Lord, that you promise that as we read them, as we meditate upon them, that your spirit communicates powerfully to our hearts. So we pray that your spirit would come and do that here this morning through your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I don't know if uh, the name Theodore Geisel uh, means anything to you at all, but Theodore Geisel was an author, and uh, in the early part of his writing career, which was in the early 1900s, uh, he was a very polarizing figure. In fact, he was rejected by most people uh, for his writing. But today, it's very different. Uh, today, his writings have become incredibly popular, despite the fact that he passed away uh, in 1991. Uh, The story goes that after uh, going to school in Dartmouth and then uh, going to Oxford, uh, he returned back to New York City around 1927, and he began uh, to write during the Great Depression. And uh, most people did not like his writing at all. Uh, In fact, most people disliked him. Uh, The story goes that he had one manuscript that he went to 43 different publishers, and each one of those 43 different publishers rejected what he had written. In fact, at one point, he even walked away thinking that he was going to burn the manuscript in the street because he was so tired of being rejected. And so he struggled as a writer uh, all through World War II and the Great Depression. He tried to write. He did little cartoons here or there. But his first uh, big break came in 1955 when he decided to write a children's book called Horton Hears a Who. And instead of using his actual name, he used his pen name, which was Dr. Seuss. And quickly thereafter, he was no longer a polarizing figure, but he instantly became an incredibly popular figure. In fact, the reason I'm even thinking about it is my kids had Dr. Seuss week at school this week and dressed up as their favorite Dr. Seuss character. But his story is one, uh, it's a case study in someone who started their life being sharply criticized and being polarized and then later on evolving into a figure that was incredibly popular and beloved by many. But in many ways, his path was the very opposite of what we see in the Gospels. Because in the Gospel story, we see that its main character, Jesus Christ, shifts from being an incredibly popular figure to being an incredibly polarizing and often rejected figure. And really, his story turns on a dime. And we see that in our passage here this morning. You see, Jesus had a way of of driving those around him into decision. You had to make some sort of decision as to who you believed Jesus Christ was. And our passage proves that here this morning. And as we look at it, we'll see that in this passage, many people were offended by Jesus. One person chose to betray Jesus. And only a handful handful chose to actually believe in Jesus. So let's first look at the many who were offended. Verse 60 says this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Later on, it says in verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back, and they no longer walked with him. If you start from the very beginning of John chapter 6, where this passage is found, uh, you'll read the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. And many commentators look at that passage and say it was probably far more than 5,000 people. It was often practiced in the ancient world uh, to only count men. So obviously there were women, there were children there, and that's led many commentators to think that Jesus miraculously fed 10,000 people with just a few fish and a few loaves of bread. After this, the crowd that had assembled were ready to crown Jesus as king. This was in many ways the, the zenith or the climax of Jesus' public ministry, and his disciples all around him were thrilled. They were ecstatic. This is the very thing that they had been waiting for for years. But then John tells us that after this, Jesus slowly dismissed everyone that was in the crowd He sent them home, and in the process, he sent his disciples in boats to the other side of the lake. And if you were with us last week, you saw the story of, of Jesus walking powerfully across the lake and calming the wind and the waves and scaring his disciples to death in the process. His power, his divinity was on display for his disciples to see that day. But by the morning, which is where our passage uh, restarts, by the morning the crowds had reassembled. They had heard that, that Jesus was on the other side of the lake, so they went by boat or they rushed around the lake and they reformed around Jesus to hear more about his teaching. But this time, when Jesus began to teach, the character of his teachings began to change radically. Jesus starts speaking to the crowd and he tells them that they are there because they are listening to their stomachs and not because they are because they are listening to their hearts. They are looking for spiritual bread when Jesus clearly said, "I have come to bring a spiritual bread." In fact, he tells them in verse 5 that he is the bread of life. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And what John tells us is that when the Jews began to hear this, they started to grumble amongst one another. It says that in verse 41. And then verse 52 tells us that they started to argue and fight among themselves based on the things that Jesus was teaching. They could not believe what he was saying. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. Most of them, you see, were there for a free show. They wanted to, to see Jesus perform some sort of miracles, or they were there for free food. They, wanted, they were hungry again, and they wanted to have more food miraculously provided for them by the hand of Jesus. You see, they were there because they simply wanted Jesus to enhance their lives, to somehow increase their prosperity, But Jesus was claiming that he was there to do much more than what they desired. He wanted to redefine their lives, to redefine everything about them. And when he began teaching that, it came to a tipping point. Even Jesus' disciples couldn't believe exactly what they were hearing. That word for offense that is used in this passage Uh, is the Greek word skandalon, which is where we get the word scandalized from. There were audible gasps, you can imagine, in the crowd as Jesus began to teach these things when he said things like, you need to, to eat my flesh and to drink my blood. That word offense means that it is causing others to stumble. In short, no one was able to really handle the words that Jesus was saying. And so John tells us that slowly, one by one, they all turned their backs and they walked away. They all decided to go home. Now, if Jesus had PR handlers or a a social media team surrounding him, they would all deem this to be an absolute disaster. When the crowd had reached its biggest moment, when Jesus' followers were greatest in number, when this movement had reached the peak of its momentum, Jesus chose in that moment to start teaching really hard things. And because of that, now the campaign was over, the platform had been destroyed And most had concluded personally that Jesus was not who they thought he was, and so they all decided to go home. This man was either demented, he was either paranoid, or he was crazy. And his words, if he continued to teach them, were going to get him killed. In their minds, Jesus was headed for disaster. And because of that, people could not get off the bandwagon fast enough. Enough. All of the fair-weather fans of Jesus had disappeared at this moment. A crowd that was numbering in the thousands had now been reduced to just a handful of people. What this tells us is really important. Because, friends, if, if you are not in some way offended by the teachings of Jesus... Then you are not listening hard enough. The gospel offends many things. It offends our sense of self. It tells us that we are far more sinful and polluted than we ever dared imagine. The gospel offends our sense of independence. It tells us that we are completely unable to save ourselves, we are dead in our sins, we are entirely dependent upon the gracious work of God. The gospel offends our sense of ease. The gospel calls us to die to our own desires and to our own will. And the gospel also offends our sense of boundaries. The gospel calls us to forsake all, to forsake everything, to follow Jesus. Jesus demands all of us, not just some small part of who we are. The gospel demands a lot. What Jesus demands is exclusive devotion to him as the only source of life. His words can be scandalizing and offensive to anything we have built our lives upon that are not him. And friends, this also has implications for how we do church and how we think about church as well. Because if we as a church somehow forsake the hard teachings of Jesus, then we as a church have ceased to follow him as well. There's been a great pull within Christianity for probably as long as it's been around to only teach certain elements of the gospel, and that pull can be very strong at times. Because if one wants to grow a community or a movement of followers of Jesus, shouldn't we tend to shy away from some of the offensive messages of Jesus or at least not lead with a message that is offensive? Shouldn't we just fashion a message that fits in with the consumer orientation of the society in which we live in? But to cave to those pressures is to actually forsake the entire purpose of what God designed the church to be. You see, we we have to be faithful to not just teach the beauty of the gospel, and there is incredible beauty in the gospel, but we also have to teach that it can be very offensive to us at times as well. We have to be honest enough with the content of the gospel to recognize that it can be offensive and that unless the Spirit of God moves in us, it will offend and scandalize most people all the way out the door. Rejection should not surprise us when it comes to the message of the gospel. So, what we see here is that when this new Jesus movement reached a tipping point, many were offended, many were scandalized, most left. But what we also see is that one chose to betray. Verse 70 Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, Was going to betray him. Now we'll see more of this once we approach the final week of Christ's life towards the end of Lent. But what John is doing here is he's starting to build the tone of darkness. He's trying to help us to see that the road that Jesus is traveling on is getting darker and darker. And Jesus, perhaps more than anyone there, understands this uniquely. Because Jesus knew that one of these men who had followed him intensely for three years would end up betraying him, turning him in to the Jewish authorities for a simple matter of 30 pieces of silver. And so what John is doing is he is setting the stage for the crucifixion. He's showing us that hatred towards Jesus is gathering, that the last act of tragedy is, is now beginning. So many were offended, one betrayed, but finally a few, really just a handful, believed. Verse 66, after this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. If you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been looking at, at Jesus's story through the eyes of Peter this Lenten season, and perhaps this is one of Peter's finest moments of faith right here. He has lots of failures and lots of weaknesses, but this may be one of his finest moments because when you think about it, literally thousands of people have walked away. They've walked away offended and scandalized by Jesus's teaching. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he gives them a very simple question. He says, are you going to go too? Are you going to leave me as well? Are you going to head home just like everyone else? And Peter steps up. Peter steps up as impetuous as ever. He steps up in an incredible moment of faith and says, Lord, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. See, Peter's acknowledging a few things here. He's first acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, whether his words are soothing or offensive Whether they are agreeable or hard to swallow, at the end of the day, they are authoritative. And we are called to live our lives accordingly. Peter also powerfully acknowledges that Jesus is the only way. He says to Jesus, where else are we going to go? He remembers well Jesus' words when he said, I am the way in the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter also powerfully acknowledges that believing in Jesus leads to the eternal life. In fact, it is the only path that leads to eternal life. There is no other path to the Father. There is no other source of hope in life. There's no other way to forgiveness. All other paths are empty and futile. All other foundations are crumbling. And if it is indeed true that our lives persist beyond this physical body in a state of bliss and joy, then Jesus is the only way to get there. For those of us who have been really following Peter, this is an impressive moment. We look at Peter and we say, "Wow, Peter, you've you've really expressed your faith in incredible ways. What a great moment." But we would be mistaken to think that all of it should be credited to Peter. Because it wasn't at the end of the day Peter's effort at faith that made this confession so powerful. At the end of the day, it was the Spirit of God that was working in his heart. And the same was true for every one of them that remained with Jesus that day. You see, they believed because the Spirit of God had opened their eyes and their hearts to believe what Jesus was saying. Verse 63 It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. You see, friends, no one can claim that in their flesh they have believed in God. No one could say that they've believed in God through their sheer force of will and effort because the gospel tells us that our sin has so corrupted us that we would never come to God on our own. William Barclay said this, man can never fully understand God. In fact, man refuses Christ, not just because he puzzles the intellect, but because he challenges life. But the good news is that God's Spirit moves and works powerfully. It is the Spirit of God operating at our heart level that ultimately is the thing that brings about life. And because of that, all of it from start to finish is a purely gracious act of God. This certainly means something for each one of us personally We ought to pray daily, every day, that earnestly, that the Spirit of God would continue to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. But this is also great news for the church and its purpose as well. Because if the message of the gospel is offensive, we begin to wonder if there's any hope. How will anyone ever accept this message of the gospel if if it is so scandalous, But what the the Scriptures tell us is that there is hope, that God is on the move, and that the Spirit takes this offensive and scandalizing message, faithfully proclaimed, and brings life out of it in miraculous and powerful ways. And so, friends, come to terms with the truth of Jesus Christ and with the truth of the gospel. Not just part of it, but all of it. Don't pick and choose things to believe about Jesus as if we were in some sort of spiritual cafeteria line. Instead, come to terms with all of what Jesus has said. Allow yourself to be offended and scandalized by the gospel because everyone needs to come to a moment of decision when it comes to To Jesus Christ. But in your moment of greatest offense, when you feel most scandalized by the words of Jesus Christ, when you wonder whether you can really swallow it at all, in that moment, listen to the voice of God that is speaking into your heart and confess with Peter, Lord to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray.